I'm here with John, and tonight we, uh, we're going to discuss uh, John Meindorf's uh, Byzantine theology as a kind of introduction, uh, not just for pure historos, you know, historical sake, but I think that there is a lot in the Eastern tradition that is of great value. And, and I wanted to especially tonight to hit those high points that I think in the Latin you know, or Western tradition, which we're all in the, the you know, even Protestantism sort of heirs of, We've missed out then on a, a rich aspect of uh, theology, uh, and that the, this is open to us then, I think, in Byzantine theology or in Eastern Orthodox theology. And so tonight, uh, I thought we could talk about a little bit about the uh, doctrine of man and uh, the uniqueness then of that understanding as it leads then to uh, in a Byzantine theology or Eastern Orthodox theology, the idea of uh, salvation. So, uh, John, give us a, a quick uh, rundown on what would be the key differences or what is the unique aspect of the doctrine of man uh, as Meindorf runs it down. Okay. Um, as I was thinking about this, I think a neat way to tie this in historically to the development of theology would be to go to three figures who are all active in the fourth century, uh, and fourth and I guess into even into the fifth century. That would be, of course, Augustine of Hippo, Pelagius, and then John Cashin. And each of these thinkers has given us a different way of thinking about what it means to be human, and what it means to be human in relationship to the fall and God's grace. So that the Augustine that we're most familiar with, and he's the most tricky of these three figures, of course, because people have defended him valiantly and maybe even uh, accurately against a Reformation or a Reformed understanding of Augustine's theology. But for most people, I think listening, the reformed view is the received understanding. And if that's the case, then Augustine ends up saying something along the lines of that humans are, if not totally depraved, that's, of course, John Calvin, very close to that, that if there is any freedom of the will, it's always just the freedom to choose uh, evil or it's the freedom to choose negatively. The will is incapacitated in other views completely so that there's really no freedom at all. And that's God's grace restores that. And what that gives rise to, of course, much later in Western theology, is your sort of Calvinist or Reformed theology of total depravity and irresistible grace, predestination, and those things that aren't necessarily in Augustine, but that people have read into Augustine later on. Then, on the other hand, there's Pelagius, who is advocating that we don't necessarily need Christ to save us, or that we can live a perfect life, or we can attain the good in our lives. And he seems to, um, of course, spur Augustine on to making these more and more extreme assertions of the incapacity of human will and what sin has done to us. And what eventually you get out of that conversation is the church being forced to side with Augustine and a version of original sin that has sin being hereditarily passed down. And they have to say those things because Pelagius was an obvious heretic and talking about the incarnation of Christ not being central to what it means to be a human. But on the other hand, there's another figure who stands out in the tradition, 
and he actually is, um, I think, venerated as a saint in both the Eastern and the Western traditions, though that's not always been the case in the West. And this is John Cashin. John Cashin was a monk who traveled throughout Egypt and interviewed many of the Desert Fathers and then, of course, began a tradition that was very similar in Central Eastern Europe. And Cashin, as he will talk about grace and what it means to be human, is mainly wanting to stick to things that can be doctrinally asserted through Scripture and the church fathers who had come before him. So he's not willing to take a position, if he even knew about the argument that's going on between Augustine and Pelagius, he's not willing to take any of those extreme positions. But what you do get is a very strong emphasis on the fact that God's grace is transforming us into the likeness and image of God, also in that, or by the way of, rather, a participation in the life of the Trinity. And so that in Cashin's discussion of grace, grace is no longer simply the thing that saves us from sin, um, and it becomes a much larger discussion about grace and what is humanity in relationship to God. And the Eastern tradition flows from that, I think, Cashin's theology, and that, of course, it's developed by other people. And in a way, it would be nice if we could just side with John Cashin and say that's all we needed to know. But as I've done some more recent study on people like Bernard Lonergan and Thomas Aquinas, who are dealing with Augustine and saying Augustine asks some good questions, even if he never gives us very good answers to those questions about grace and free will and what is God doing in our life, I think that you actually might have a more developed understanding of the same doctrines in the West, but it's always been a minority view. So it would have been a minority view in the Catholic Church. This wasn't, hasn't been, rather, the dominant interpretation of Thomas Aquinas from the Counter-Reformation onwards. And it's sort of what, to most people, seems like a mere 20th century development, although, uh, of course, before the Reformation, um, views, discussions on grace would have included these Eastern, what we now call Eastern notions of a participation and theosis or deification. And is that what we're, is that the, uh, the thing that we're talking about with Cashin that has come, you're, you're saying that this is then there in Thomas Aquinas is the idea of participation. Yes, yeah, and he's getting that from Augustine and from Dionysius Theriopagite. And, of course, in the Eastern tradition, one of the key figures in any discussion about theosis is going to be Dionysius. Let's, so, let's, start, let's pause just a minute and say then what, in other words, I think this is the center of the whole conversation, so we should probably get it out there. Yeah, I what, may be rambling. What is meant by participation? Participation in this sense, I think, is most closely associated with those, either the Latin deification or the Greek theosis. And it comes out of Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4, to partake in the divine nature. So the Eastern and Western theologians that are engaging these ideas, which would be practically all of the East and virtually none of the West, um, they do so in, a, in different ways. But the ideas are the same. So Palamas, or Palamas rather, Gregory Palamas, who we've done a podcast on recently, he may be helpful in this discussion because what he means by participation, what the Eastern tradition means by participation, is that we can become the energies of God, though we don't become the essence or the nature of God. 
And if I'm, uh, I mean, the way that Meindorf runs this down, that in the uh, Eastern understanding, then, when you talk about God or talk about human beings as soul and body and spirit, actually it's Holy Spirit, and that it's yes. with a capital S, that actually it's the Spirit of God indwelling human beings that is the full, the completion then of what it means to be human. Yes, yeah. And that so is the, the participation. Well, it is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but that's not ever in Eastern Orthodox theology seen separately from the work accomplished in the incarnation, that you're able to have human nature and a divine nature in one per in, in hypostasized in one person, which makes possible the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Run that it's down a for us. event. Uh, so, uh, Meindorf also has chapters on Jesus, and all he always is relating this back to the idea that we're talking about. I think that we are hitting the central theme: what it means to be human in reference to the doctrine of theosis. Uh, early church councils, of course, are all focusing on the Trinity, making sure that we have a way of speaking about the Trinity just for the purposes of what do we believe and really to delineate that from people who are not Trinitarian. And then later the issue becomes about Jesus, who is Jesus, so that we're still Trinitarian Christians. And in some sense, what's happening after the Council of Chalcedon, which gives us a definition, not necessarily a authoritative ruling. They're not anathematizing people. Well, I mean, people do get anathematized, but the definition itself doesn't function that way. Uh, it's a definition that anybody should adhere to. It's a biblical definition. That is that the Logos is the person of Christ. And in the person of Christ, the Logos, is in hypostasized a human nature. So hey, now run, run down for a bit. A bit. Uh, the notion of inhypostasized. In other words, so we talk about the hypostasis, or hypostasis, I think the correct way of pronouncing that, is just the Greek word for um, person or subsistence or individual. It's a way of talking about the threeness of the Trinity in, in an orthodox way. Uh -huh. So there's only ever one nature, one essence, and the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are all that one essence. And they are, you can speak about them in relationship to one another as each being the essence of God, or you could speak of them uh, together as one God as being the essence of God. And so the emphasis is that Jesus is fully divine when we say a human nature is hypostasized in the Logos. So we're talking about a divine person of the Trinity who is now also fully human, and which makes it. And, and there is this focus in uh, Eastern theology on the logos or logos uh, that, I, I mean, uh, that what happens in the East with logos is very much, or at least later, you know, it's all connected, I think, wrongly, of course, in Bolt, Boltmanian theology with Gnosticism. But there is this long tradition in the East uh, that you're describing then a doctrine of man and, and of, uh, of who Christ is, is in and through the Logos, that's, that emphasis, at least, seems to be lacking in the West. Yes. So, I mean, we, when we're talking about Western theology, we're always talking about just the majority of Western theology, because there have been so many things tried in the West. 
Whereas in the East, uh, oddly enough, or at least when you read Eastern theologians, they present it as more of a monolithic set of beliefs. That's probably not true practically. Um, But there is certainly this approved tradition in the East. And it's an easier tradition to work with because generally speaking, we're just talking about the seven ecumenical councils plus Gregory Palamas. Okay, so go on with the story, the idea then that, that in Christ there is this notion of the deity and humanity, and that then becomes the basis for uh, a, a true humanity in uh, theosis. Okay, so in the person of Christ, we have God fully identifying with human beings so that human beings can be God. But, of course, in Eastern Orthodoxy, first you have to start with a doctrine of creation that points at the fundamental difference between what it means for God to be God and humans to be human has nothing to do with sin, has everything to do with the fact that we're created beings and God isn't. So when an Eastern Orthodox theologian says that we become God, what they're saying is that we become God in his energies or we become God in his characteristics, attributes, but we can never, of course, become God in his essence because then we would cease to be creatures. So we always remain as creatures. But it is the incarnation that makes all of this possible. So the incarnation is central. And, and the idea then is this going back to someone like Irenaeus the the incarnation is a kind of reworking of all the aspects of humanity that makes then deity available to us in those various aspects of humanity. Yes, so Irenaeus and uh, Justin Martyr, to a lesser extent, both talk about the recapitulation of really all things, but you could think about it just in terms of human history in Christ and reoriented towards God and perfect obedience. This gets taken up then by Athanasius, who lives a little bit later and has a lasting impact because this is in between the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Constantinople. And uh, a lot of doctrine is being uh, described. I guess a lot of doctrine is being set forth during that time period. And so there's this, uh, I, uh, just this, I mean, we've already gotten into the uh, uh, difference in you know, the focus in, and, and even the term atonement apparently is, you know, in the West we focused on Christ fulfilling the law in and through his death. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so the, the difference is both a description and uh, the whole point of salvation, uh, and even then in the... the the, the role of who Christ is. Yes, so the way that I understand this is that in Eastern Orthodox theology, uh, there's among other Eastern Orthodox, there wouldn't be a discussion of atonement theory because there isn't atonement theories necessarily. There's just theosis. And so there's a lot of discussion about what the incarnation means what does the incarnation mean in reference to Jesus' death on a cross and resurrection, which is even, uh, that question is already asking bigger things in the sense that you're already contemplating the fact that you have this person who is fully God, the Logos, with a human nature dying. And so that's a complex conversation just to begin with, rather than just simply a discussion of how does 
God the Son have something to do with God the Father on the cross, they wouldn't think of the atonement in those terms. And, of course, within all of this, there is an alternative understanding of what sin is, that sin is always, it seems like in the East, uh, interconnected with the concept of death, and death is itself always interconnected with sin. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, a terrible way of thinking about it would be just to say that it's cultural in the sense that original sin, we're born into a culture of sin and enculturated, but it's only terrible because I think of the way that people, most people would understand that. They don't mean that it's, it's cultural in the sense that it's, inexca- that it's uh, escapable. It's inescapable. As humans, we are born into the sin system. And it is disease-like in that sense, but it's not uh, genetic, hereditary, or it doesn't affect the will uh, like it would in a lot of Western theologies. And so sin is very much a a real thing in the sense of sin is what you do that is sinful, rebellious to God. And we are enslaved to that. We are encumbered by that such that we would never reach our proper end, which would be theosis or a life with God being like God. So grace in Eastern Orthodox theology or salvation in Eastern Orthodox theology isn't really aimed at just taking care of sin because though sin is our biggest human problem, that's really not the point of God's plan. Isn't just to simply take care of sin. The point of God's plan is to make us like himself. And the key problem, though, in making us like himself, uh, I mean, that was always, that's always the idea was this participation. But what you get in an Eastern, what it opens up to you in Scripture, you know, this morning I did uh, in the sermon, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14, 15, where it talks about that it is the, through the fear of death that, uh, we are enslaved to Satan. Uh, I don't know quite what you do with that in a in a Western context if you're focused on a kind of legal deliverance. Yeah. But this just makes all the sense. You know, this fits very. I mean, it, it, uh, an Eastern understanding is a developing text like that. It seems. Yeah, definitely. So that sin, sin is the situation that we find ourselves in. That pretty much renders theosis or a real relationship with God impossible apart from what God was going to do in our lives. But to say that actually is maybe to miss the point that becoming like God is impossible, whether we're sinners or not. So that it was always going to be an act of grace that makes theosis possible. The incarnation is always necessary to theosis. So it just depends on if you were thinking about it and from what I would call more of a human perspective, that sin is, Sin is actually encumbering us from even the process of theosis, whereas at least once sin is out of the way, we can respond to this God's grace in such a way that we are becoming like him through theosis. Now, in, in all of this, uh, there is the kind of different interaction. It's sort of, and, and it's sort of odd uh, that you have the different interaction with, with a philosophical understanding uh, that Ironically, you have uh, Greek theologians who seem bent upon then uh, an understanding of, you know, the, the, the whole Platonic or uh, dualistic uh, understanding seems to be largely lacking in the East. 
Yeah, uh, definitely. Somebody like Mindorf, that's the way that he's telling the story. I think we always have to be cautious in the sense that whenever we talk about Neoplatonism in the church, that this is before you had an Eastern and a Western church, and many of them are Greek-speaking theologians that are Neoplatonists and writing in Greek. But during the, by and large, during the time period of the Byzantine Empire, that there was a very strict divide between people who might study what now is referred to as the humanities, though I'm sure that's anachronistic, who would study Plato, Aristotle, Homer, those types of things. It was a purely academic exercise, maybe to learn how to reason, how to use logic, how to use these tools. But they weren't trying to integrate the metaphysics into Christian theology. Of course, another critique might be that that had already happened by then. So that's kind of a mixed bag. Meyendorf is a very conservative orthodox theologian and so he would very much like to tell the story as if there wasn't a influence but i think there's already the influence of vocabulary and ideas even in the earliest of church councils and i don't mean that in a bad way i just sometimes i wonder how how lacking some of uh, those metaphysical ideas really are they're certainly christianized and maybe that's not a bad thing so that what's happening in Greek theology more so than especially in Reformation theology or in Western theology is that in Greek theology there's awareness there's an awareness that if we're going to read the philosophers they are going to serve biblical theology rather than the other way around so you would never start with like some scholastics do with a Greek metaphysical framework and then just try to meld Christian theology into that as if the philosophy is just a proto-theology. And that, at least that's the way Meindorf is telling the story, that yeah. uh, that in the East, the, the dualism that seems to be pervasive or become even problematic in the West, he is claiming is largely lacking in the development of an Eastern understanding. Yeah. I mean, the the East also anathematizes people, though, so it's not like there haven't been Greek theologians that have uh, dabbled too much in uh, Greek philosophy as well. And maybe we should run down or be clear what we mean here, that, you know, what you get uh, in, in, and not to say that it's exclusive to the East, but there is this deep appreciation then for a kind of holism, uh, in salvation, that it's inclusive of all that Christ is and all that we are, that seems very much then tied in uh, to an, a full appreciation of, of uh, embodiment. Yes, yeah, absolutely. That so gets the, left out. Yeah, sometimes. so a way of thinking about it, it's kind of an odd way for most Western Christians, but in the East, when they're thinking about salvation, or theosis really is what they're thinking about, is that whenever one would die and one would be present with the Lord in whatever form that is, they don't take a dogmatic stance. Um, it's not as if there's just an automatic dump of God's grace and so that we're all equal before the Lord. But rather, Greek theologians think in terms of the fact that once you're present with Christ, you just take up where you left off in this life simply without temptation. So that there will be people in the presence of God who are more spiritually inclined or have are farther along on the process of theosis, which is an eternal process, than others. And so we just continue. 
Yeah, so they really see this life as being very meaningful. Uh, and, and is there then a appreciation uh, for a kind of cosmic aspect to this in the East? Yeah, I think you could say the same thing about the cosmos in general, is that everything is being transformed so that uh, salvation in the end in the East or the resurrection in the end in the East is always emphasized as being a resurrection of all things. Now, in the, you know, in the uh, spelling out the differences, it, it gets fairly technical. I didn't necessarily want to go into that tonight. Uh, you know, that, that uh, the, the reason for the split, which uh, it seems to have happened over a long period of time, mm -hmm. not been exactly clear. But uh, rather than look at that, if you just had in big, broad terms uh, to characterize the differences between the East and the West, how would you do that? Well, that's, that's always such a difficult question, I, especially maybe for this day and age, because there's so many people that have uh, picked up Eastern ideas and Western contexts. But um, you could certainly say from the time of the Middle Ages, the late Middle Ages on, there's a very sharp distinction in the way the East and the West are thinking about salvation, which is what we're, we're talking about tonight. And you've mentioned this several times, but to spell that out a little bit more clearly, is that by the 1400s, late 1400s, definitely the 1500s, you're in the Reformation time period, the West is thinking of salvation in purely legal terms. And so that whatever references Anselm's divine satisfaction still had to the incarnation as being somewhat uh, important to and I think they were probably fading even then in Anselm's analogy. But what you're left with in the West is a salvation that takes place in a certain point in time in your life, and you're saved from then on. And, uh, you, I mean, even in the groups that believe you might lose that salvation, your salvation or justification, you could pinpoint when that happened to you, some kind of conversion-type experience. And that then salvation is a contract that you have with God. And that would simply make no sense to an Eastern Orthodox Christian, let alone an Eastern Orthodox theologian. So they're thinking about salvation as a process that is this what we've been talking about, theosis, that really comes down to not you're living your life a certain way to get saved, but the way that you live your life with God even now is your salvation. And I think that's probably the sharpest distinction, at least in uh, both theology and practice between the East and the West, even though, I mean, you might point at the issues with the Trinity and things like that, but those sort of take a back seat to what both churches are saying about the salvation process. Now, in, in Meindorf, and again, I, you know, to, to the degree that he's a true representative of this, but I, the focus that he had, even upon, you know, the, the, uh, the problem that is addressed is the problem of death, and in connection then to the problem of death, the problem of sin, so that, you know, someone who gives themselves completely over to sin is simply giving themselves over to death. And, and though he never says it, the idea is that really that's where the theology takes you, is that, uh, that uh, in, in a sense, that uh, it isn't, you know, if you do not have the spirit, you do not have life, 
you do not have life, then you're given over to death. Uh, the, uh, that then is itself kind of the end of the, the judgment. Yeah, I mean, in a way that uh, de- original sin is still the language used in the Eastern Orthodox Church, but it very much is uh, described just simply in terms of one's orientation to death. So that through having to deal with the reality of death, we are led to doing sinful things to try to attain life, which is how they would describe the original sin in the garden. And that that's a a process that just gets recapitulated over and over and over and again in our lives. We become enslaved to death in that way, and then we might as well just be dead, which is really how the Apostle Paul talks about the same thing, I think. I guess that, that my experience in, a, uh, in coming to a full appreciation of this, and I, I can't, I, you know, it's a little embarrassing that I'm this late in life uh, uh, reading uh, about the Eastern tradition. And what has happened in my own journey then is a kind of appreciation for uh, an alternative, you know, the idea of an alternative understanding of such sin and salvation and, but but of course I haven't worked this out in dialogue necessarily with any kind of Eastern thought. You know, I was actually just thinking uh, that myself that you sort of uh, are just proving your point that there's such a sharp contrast between the East and the West because you've come to an appreciation of the same theology definitely in a Western context. If not only arguing against some Western ideas, you're still able to navigate through those. Uh, just with reading scripture and doing studies on uh, a book like Romans, chapter 6, 7, and 8, and even engaging Western theologians come to some of the same premises. And so it's kind of, you know, that uh, as you come into an Eastern, I I mean, it's already there in Irenaeus that, you know, is a shared, I think everybody would claim Irenaeus, but in some oh, way... Yeah, we, only, we really only have his writing in Latin anyway. I mean, he wrote in Greek, but we have Latin manuscripts of him. So it should have been more fully appreciated in the Western Church, but was yeah. not. Well, and I think it was up until... Uh, you know, I think we underestimate the power that the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation had upon the Western Church in general, so that uh, you know, we're celebrating 500 years of the Reformation, 500, the 500th anniversary, rather, this year of the Reformation. And I think Germany is having all sorts of celebrations, and there's hardly even any Christians, <laughs> let alone uh-huh. uh, Reformed Lutherans in Germany. But that's just the impact Luther had. And I think um, then, of course, the counter to that, the Council of Trent and the Counter-Reformation, the Catholic Counter-Reformation, transformed the language, the politics, the theology, really just life in Europe for the last 500 years. That it's become a, that it's a cultural shift that's not necessarily Christian. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't needed Christianity to sustain it, that's for sure. Yeah, uh, which may say something about the original ideas. But it is theological. And I think that's the point you're, you're tacitly making. So even though it's not necessarily Christian, it's still theological, and it's led us to uh, a really bad theology, and a theology that even now Christians are affirming this relationship with God in terms of a legal contract. I think that, yeah, it, it is, it's theological, and I think that from bad theology, 
uh, you get uh, uh, a full-blown secularism, atheism, yes. uh, and in which uh, I, I think that bad theology leads to the demise of the belief in God as a life possibility. Yes, yeah, I think so. So that that and that that's your that's the big division, I think. Uh, if we need to start putting a dividing line, what's happened in the West versus what's happened in the East? There's plenty of people that probably don't believe in God or atheism has come into the East as well, but not in the same way. So that you've got Marxist philosophy, uh, which actually sounds sort of Christian at points. Um, <laughs> it's so close to Christianity that it becomes very dangerous. And so then you can introduce that into a culture like Russia and you get atheism and those things. But it is sort of an import into that worldview so that the horizon of an orthodox believer, an orthodox theologian, really wouldn't allow for just does God exist or does God not exist when all of the categories they're working with aren't about uh, either or type of uh, being is or being isn't, or um, I'm trying to think of better ways of explaining this. It's it, you don't have those dualistic categories of reason, of human autonomous reason, and being able to figure things out. Actually, God is always a mystery, and we're entering into the mystery of God with our lives through devotion and faithfulness in uh, an Eastern Orthodox framework. And maybe that's a, that, that part of what we're describing here is that you know in. Uh, describing salvation, there is always this, uh, you know, it's the, the mystical aspect. But of course, what is meant by mystery is not the same thing, but just the idea, you could almost just use the term holism, that there is this holistic entry, an experiential entry, that there is then not the focus on, a, a, you know, a, a, a kind of head knowledge or uh, a philosophical yeah. understanding. Yeah, I used uh, mystery in the sense that uh, God is inexhaustible because he's not a concept. So in the East, God has never been relativized to a concept in Eastern theology, and so it's it's not one that we can have a grasp on to then do away with. If I, you know, it, it, the, an Eastern understanding would make a whole world of sense, and I think in in a place like Japan, and, and I think that actually you could almost say this in a kind of universal sense, that in traditional societies, that, you know, what is it that uh, Christianity is doing? Uh, it is, uh, there is this basic challenge to traditional cultures from Christianity, I think in a, in a fully positive sense. I don't mean, you know, to destroy mm -hmm. the culture, but in the sense that the foundation of many traditional cultures, as is the case in Japan, is tied into ancestor worship, and quite literally, you know, the passages in Isaiah that describe uh, the Jews uh, practicing necromancy and uh, uh, worship of the dead and ancestor worship, and it's described as a covenant with death. I think that that gets at then the universal human religious predicament, uh, that ironically, uh, uh, something, the, the focus on a kind of legal understanding, where that may have made sense in the development of a Latin or Western theology, it really, uh, when you go back into a traditional theology or a 
you know, a, a non-Western or, or, or culture or a non-Western culture, that doesn't speak to people. That doesn't really say anything yeah. to where they're at. Yeah, no, I think you're right. A way of saying that would be that um, in the in the East, what you have is not uh, fulfillment of a legal contract, but rather you have the fulfillment of a uh, if what it means to be human, so that it would intersect all of us in a way that grace is the fulfillment of our humanity in a supernatural way that God is acting and God's grace is adding to who we are on our own so that we become more than any of us could ever be, and we do that in Christ. And so what's the what would be the negative force there? Well, there really isn't just a negative in a dualistic sense, but it's to buy into the nothingness of death, of a non-existence and those ideologies manifest in a variety of ways. But I think you're right in pointing, of course, to ancestral worship, the actual worship of death itself or the worship of nothingness itself. I just watched a, a, a documentary on the, who is it? Mellon, uh, uh, Mellon camp, the, the, one of the uh, fathers of, of anthropology uh, who's working with the uh, Trobrian. It's a little Island off of Papua New Guinea. And of course, got, he went into this culture, and they had a, a, an understanding that their ancestors are all living on a neighboring island. They're yeah. all dead, but then they they come and visit them from this neighboring island. And of course, the whole religion revolves around mm-hmm. uh, this uh, the, this kind of the ancestors war, you know, uh, controlling their lives. Now, the irony here is that in the past hundred years, they've all become Christians and the magic and the spiritism and uh, that that's all been lost. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that, that that is a typical story of what happens. What should happen religiously is that what Christianity displaces is then these religions of uh, that revolve around deification or reification of death. Uh, I don't know that a Western focus on a kind of legalistic salvation addresses that. Yeah, I don't think it would at all, uh, really. And um, I think that's why what you get with, I mean, just think about the last 500 years in the West, uh, the way of manipulating that. I was just listening to a documentary on the Aztecs, actually. And you think about uh, the same type of thing, a type of ancestral worship or a manipulation of death, but the way they manipulated the idea of death was just by human sacrifice, endless human sacrifice, just to keep the world spinning. Yeah. Uh, and in our own history, I mean, this is the history of European Westerners. Uh, the last 500 years have been increasingly violent until you get to the last century, and we have two world wars and uh, now just endless war and manufacturing of weapons and arms build up, just totally bent on destruction. It is sort of this turn to to death and to a worship of death or a fear of death that causes us to want to manipulate that fear in others uh, in ways to gain power that a true Christianity should just undercut and I think the way that it does is by this, what you're describing as being a holistic salvation or a theosis or a deification. And that, of course, you know, this is how I, or partly how that I've come into this, is that this isn't just a primitive, traditional problem, mm-hmm. yeah. but it's the human problem that I think somebody like Sigmund Freud is 
you know, mm -hmm. uh, rediscovering in a, from a psycholytic perspective uh, that the death drive or given a, the, being given over to a kind of masochistic or sadistic understanding. Uh, religion then, uh, traditional religion, is just an expression of the human psychological mm -hmm. predicament. I'm not sure then that in a Western focus on guilt that you're going to get at the root problem that a, a good Eastern Orthodoxy lends itself uh, to. Well, actually, I think you're quite sure that it's impossible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. Uh, that uh, in some way that we've so flattened this thing out that it doesn't address uh, neurosis, psychosis. Uh, it doesn't address uh, the human psyche or our, our health. Now, I'm not sure in, in the Eastern understanding if a that more holistic theology has shown itself in, in uh, an appreciation that Christianity addresses all those areas. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, of course, the tragedy of Eastern Orthodoxy is that the majority of Eastern Orthodox Christians have said, okay, that's all great. Now let's just have the monks go do that. <laughs> and we'll get on with our lives. I mean, uh, a, a way that this, you could see this working out. In other words, I think that this translates into a practical difference, that what you get in the Eastern tradition are these spiritual disciplines or practices that become ways of, uh, you know, actually doing theosis or becoming. And mm -hmm. so the meditation, the forms of prayer, I think are a means, a, a discipline that is largely lacking, not completely lacking, uh, that people in, I just read an article uh, by Sarah Coakley. Uh, she goes into the prison system, I think in Boston. Um, and, you know, that's a loud, uh, you know, place. She, all of her uh, prisoners are, the students are non-white. And so she, she's going in to teach them to pray, which is a kind of an ironic thing. But, of course, the, the thing that she describes is that the discipline of prayerful, you know, of prayer, of creating a kind of silent or, or a, a, a place that is over and against the surrounding cacophony of the, of the prison, it, it, it is then what takes place. I think that that discipline also, you know, the, the same idea is there just in, uh, in study and in, in developing the ability to concentrate for long periods of time. It is a kind of prayerful attitude that we develop. We may not think of it as prayer, but it's the same discipline that you're creating this, you're, you're creating your own, you know, your, uh, a mental world that is quite spiritual in a in a positive sense, and that seems to be then the, the when you talk about the disciplines of the Eastern Church, there is this discipline that is very much connected to theosis. Yes, yeah. Well, I mean, I think uh, in Eastern Orthodox, it's supposed to be it's all connected to theosis, and certainly that's true for the life of the monks. So that when you talk about mysticism, then I, you know, uh, I, I think that sometimes I've gotten the wrong idea that it, that it is not, it is apophatic, 
but not in the sense of just in the sense that God, in His essence, is a mystery. Yeah, well, God cannot be grasped, conceived, conceptualized. So uh, that it 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 has then. Uh, I think, in other words, I, I'm, I'm not. I'm in no way, and I don't think either is in any way mm-hmm. advocating a full blown Eastern Orthodoxy. But I think what has happened in uh, Protestantism as the heirs of a, a Latin Western tradition is that there is we've been we've received a very kind of narrow understanding mm-hmm. uh, in the theological tradition that if you see this Eastern understanding, certainly you don't have to you know, that the Eastern Church has its own problems and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, you wouldn't have to be. Uh, I mean, you could, I think we both probably consider ourselves in communion with the Eastern Church. They just wouldn't return the favor. Yeah, that uh, they <laughs> literally, yeah, yeah. that, that yeah. they would not. And, it, you know, that's the sense that uh, I, I think of myself as uh, Catholic, not in a Roman Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox sense, but in the sense that I think we are all aiming at a a Christianity that is itself universal in its embrace of the uh, theological tradition uh, and in our understanding then, uh, you know, in placing ourselves in communion with a universal church. Yeah, no, I think that's right. So uh, let's do, in conclusion, let's just do a bit then. Uh, and kind of introduce another podcast. Uh, describe then the breakdown between East and West. Oh, yeah, that would definitely be another podcast. Um, a quick rundown, as a little preview, would be that it really begins as early as the 4th century when Greeks stop speaking Latin and Latin stop speaking Greek, so that there's a decrease in bilinguals and further the distance between Rome and Constantinople. And then, of course, when Rome is sacked, many Westerns, um, many Western historians think of that as being uh, the Roman Empire has fallen. But in an Eastern mindset, the Roman Empire doesn't fall until the 1400s. So there's just a complete disconnect from that point on, purely on practical reasons. There's no communication and there's no open lanes of communication, and there's even not a singular language to communicate back and forth with, so that theology will develop in the West and in the East in different ways. And then there is, of course, the debates about the, the Trinity, which is a clause added to the, Constantin- uh, the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed and the Son, or known in Latin as the Filioque, and... Uh, that's something that's introduced in Spain, actually, and will eventually be made uh, pretty much universal in the West by the popes. And this causes a lot of hardship between the East and the West because the Eastern Church sees it being, what it, what's at stake there for the Eastern Church is that there's a Roman bishop who thinks he can tell the rest of the bishops of the church what to do. And so really behind that is uh, ecclesial, ecclesiastical problems. And there's a primacy of the Pope that the West keeps trying to assert throughout the Middle Ages that causes problems. 
on down to then the Crusader sacking Constantinople and eventually Constantinople falling to the Islamic Turks. And there's, you know, kind of half-hearted efforts to get back together during those periods of time, but nothing ever comes of it. To where today all the excommunications have been lifted between the two churches, the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox, and yet neither will serve communion (laughs) to the other. Um, So it's hard to know where to go forward as far as that goes, but I don't know if that would really mean anything to us unless they start serving us communion as well. So um, that's sort of a just real brief history, but the theology there is interesting. It would take a while to unpack. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's stop there. And uh, that uh, I, th- I think we've just touched upon a kind of uh, the, some of the key differences and maybe the feel of those differences. And, and I hope if nothing else, pointing people then to the idea that there's actually a whole different reading. And I think that's the main thing that we're trying to accomplish. That there is a different reading of the New Testament. That it, the <laughs> oldest reading of the New Testament. <laughs> yeah, it is the it is back. the oldest. It it goes back to the church fathers. It is a more full, you know, blown, uh, holistic. I think understanding. Yeah. And so I think once you see that, then you get the idea. Oh well, actually, the Protestants are the heirs of a Latin tradition that is, has been in fact fairly uh, narrow in its scope and understanding. John, it's been great. Thank you for uh, doing this so late at night. Oh, <laughs>